Tonight on The Readout. At the end of the day, at the core of this thing, he engaged in, in the case of the documents in outrageous behavior where anyone would be prosecuted. I don't know of any attorney general who could walk away from it. You might want to check the mayor bill bar because you're also saying that you would still consider voting for Trump if he wins the nomination, despite all that outrageous behavior. Plus, looking ahead to next week's Republican primary debate in which Trump now says he will not participate. I'm not making chicken noises right now, but I really, 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 really want to. And Morgan Freeman joined me. Yes, I said Morgan Freeman joined little old moi to talk about his new documentary on the first black tank battalion to fight in World War II. That interview is straight ahead. But we begin the readout tonight with the clearest picture yet of the expansive plot Trump and his allies unleashed after he lost the 2020 election. The January 6th committee and special counsel Jack Smith exposed the what as well as the who in the plot. But it was the Georgia case led by Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis that really shows us the full scope of characters in the Trump gang. The indictment is full of bizarre cameos like Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who's referenced on page 30. When prosecutors note how Donald Trump attempted to get the Georgia Attorney General on board with Paxton's doomed lawsuit on behalf of Texas to contest the election results in four other key states. Paxton is facing a lot of issues right now, namely impeachment. And he is only one, just one sliver of Trump's latest ensemble cast. At the center, of course, is Donald Trump himself and the officials tied to his efforts to subvert the 2020 election in Georgia. Household names and some of his staunchest supporters, Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff, along with Trump attorneys John Eastman and RICO pioneer Rudy Giuliani. Sorry, that jab will just never get old. But as we walk you through this plot, we meet and re-meet other characters, all of whom are facing damning charges and who reflect the true scope of this alleged criminal enterprise. The first part of the scheme was the maneuvering to get dozens of fake electors on board across multiple states. Big names in Trump world, Giuliani and Eastman, supported the fake elector scam. But there's a lesser known cast that pretty much invented the entire scheme. Kenneth Cheeseborough, the architect of the scheme, who allegedly devised the plan to submit fake slates of electors for Trump to obstruct Congress's certification of the election results. The pro-Trump attorney and co-defendant was also recently caught on camera multiple times among the crowd at the Capitol on January 6th, following around big live frontman Alex Jones. At no point does it appear that he attempted to enter the Capitol. Election worker intimidation is a key element of the conspiracy alleged in the Georgia case, which is where part two of the scheme comes in. Following the November 2020 vote, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, were falsely accused of rigging Georgia's election in favor of Joe Biden. The mother and daughter duo, both Fulton County election workers, were targeted because Trump's fraudsters needed a patsy for their fake elector plot. Now, just remember, these were not victimless crimes. Freeman and Moss were viciously harassed. Their lives upended as Trump's cronies tried to harass them into admitting to something that was not true. Which brings us back to Trump's ensemble cast and the characters you may be less familiar with. Harrison Floyd, the Maryland-based executive director of a group called Black Voices for Trump, 
Trevion Cutty, a former publicist for now scandalized music stars R. Kelly and Kanye West, as if this case wasn't weird enough. And we have Stephen Lee, a Lutheran pastor, I did say pastor, whose allegedly creepy guy history includes knocking on Freeman's door to, quote, get some truth on what's going on. All three, according to the charging document, pressured, threatened, and intimidated Ms. Freeman, citing baseless claims that she was involved in voter fraud. And then we have part three of the plot. Prosecutors are now in possession of text messages and emails directly connecting members of Trump's legal team to the early January 2021 voting system breach in heavily Republican Coffee County, a county Trump won by nearly 70 percent of the vote. Those players include attorney Sidney Powell, Misty Hampton, a former Coffee County election supervisor, Kathy Latham, a fake elector, and bail bondsman Hal Scott. And last but not least, we have the fake Republican electors themselves, who claimed illegitimately that Trump had carried the state. Not all of them are facing charges, but two of the three charged are David Schaefer and Sean Still, who know a thing or two about politics. Schaefer is the former chairman of the Georgia Republican Party and is still, to this day, a Georgia state senator. Another thing we're learning about one of the main characters from our friends on the beat is that Roger Stone was already plotting right after the election. Any legislative body may decide on the basis of overwhelming evidence of fraud to send electors to the Electoral College who accurately reflect the president's legitimate victory in their state, which was illegally denied him through fraud. Sounds awfully like the fake electors plot, right? He was calling for this on November 5th, 2020, days after the election, when people had voted, but the race had not yet been called. Meaning Roger Stone, a.k.a. the grown man with a Nixon back tattoo, was pushing this widespread fraud light regardless of the results, which again, weren't even in yet. And it would be still another month before Kenneth Cheeseborough would author the memo that outlined the actual fake elector scheme. Now that we've got two indictments that tell the story in slightly different ways, are the prosecutions even close to being over? Given that the plot to steal the 2020 election is much broader and more national than we ever even thought. I am joined now by Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel, former senior member of Robert Mueller's special counsel and an MSNBC legal analyst. And boy, oh boy, Andrew, does it just the plot just keeps getting thicker and thicker and thicker with more and more characters. But I want to focus on a couple of them with you for just a second. Let's start with Roger Stone. So Roger Stone we know now from this exclusive uh, piece of video gotten from a documentary that uh, the folks at The Beat got was talking through what sounded like the fake electors plot days after the election. But I want to play what, play you what he was doing even before the election. This is on November 1st, 2020. Here he is, Roger Stone. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it'll still be up in the air. When that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. Yeah. You're wrong. F*** you. 
Andrew, Roger Stone's name does not appear in either of the two indictments, which I have read and I am enjoying reading them because it is so fascinating. His name ain't in either of them. Does that surprise you? Now it does, um, given <laughs> given what uh, we what the thing that you just played and also the evidence that the beat uncovered. Um, obviously, I'm very aware of Roger Stone. He was somebody that we prosecuted in the Mueller investigation. He was convicted, as just to remind everyone, on all counts at a trial by a jury. Twelve citizens found unanimously he was guilty of all charges. And Donald Trump commuted that sentence uh, just days before. And Bill Barr, just to be clear, had a role in that because Bill Barr mm -hmm. wanted to also sort of essentially get rid of the sentence recommendation there and help Donald Trump's friends, of which this was one. And what did Roger Stone do, according to what you just did, is what you just played, is while you're out on bail awaiting sentencing, um, you're engaging in a coup. Um, so yeah. you can understand why the Department of Justice would feel like he has not been sufficiently held to account because essentially Donald Trump erased his last uh, finding of criminality. So I think he's one of the people who I think we're going to see uh, additional. We're going to see charges. Um, I think that's true of Chesbrough. I think it's going to be true at the federal level for a whole variety of people. Uh, I'd be very surprised if we didn't see charges against Chesbrough, against Rudy Giuliani, um, a number of people. Um, I do think that the federal government probably wants to wait and see what the trial date is first with respect to Donald Trump. They're keeping their eye on the prize, so to speak. That's where their main focus is and I think should be. But these other players, um, I think that they, like Georgia, are going to hold them to account. I do want to talk about the trial date. I'm going to put a pin in that for a second. I'm writing it down because I, I know I always want to okay. ask you more questions than I ever have time for. So I'm writing down trial date. But before I get to trial date, I'll be, let's go I'll to be Cheeseboro. Back, OK. <laughs> oh, you, you never leave. You, you, does anyone understand this is a hostage situation <laughs> and that this man never gets to go home? Um, and you have a nice place to live. I saw it. I saw you on with Jen. Uh, so let's talk with about Cheeseboro, Chesboro, however you pronounce his name, because this is actually new information, too. So he is and we didn't even really pay attention to him when we were talking through and we were all on the big set with with Rachel Maddow and everybody. And we were all talking through the first set of indictments. He was sort of he seemed like a less big player, but now he seems like a big, big, big player. He is writing the memos that are saying, here's how we do the coup. But then he actually shows up at the Capitol. And I do believe he pleaded the fifth when asked in one of the many proceedings, yes. were you at the Capitol? He said, I plead the fifth. What do you make of the fact that he's doing the sort of intellectual plotting of the coup and then showing up at the coup? So, um, one, I do think DOJ is fully aware of this because, remember, they had the full scope of all of the memos that he had written. Remember, the January 6th committee had some, but not all. But we learned from the indictment that Chesbrough had or Cheesebrough had um, written one more memo that was quite incriminating. Uh, and then the New York Times actually got their hands on it and published um, that. So we have, I do think DOJ is very much on it. I think the fact that he actually showed up on January 6th makes his defense so much harder because it's not just an academic exercise. It's not just, oh, I had some good faith legal <laughs> argument. He's fully invested in seeing this happen. This is not normally what a lawyer might be like, oh, here's some argument, by the way, here's what I think the merits are, or I think it may not fly. 
you know, that's sort of one thing. But when you're actually there on the scene with who else but Alex Jones, I mean, you know, crazy man. Um, I mean, that is such a terrible thing. I mean, so I think if I were a DOJ, he, if I'm looking at the list of people I want to charge and quickly put more pressure on them to cooperate, he would be one. Um, Jeff Clark would be another. These are people where charges could be so strong and a good lawyer for them, one that's not MAGA affiliated, might say to them, you know what, what side of this do you want to be on? Um, And, you know, you really need to to work something out. If he now given that he is charged in Georgia, his he's got separate legal potential liability, as you're explaining now on the federal side. He's got liability in the state of Georgia. Could pleading out in Georgia in any way help him in a federal case? Is he now in a position where he could actually hurt Trump on the federal side and help himself in Georgia? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's no way to cooperate in one without cooperating in the other. And there's no way to plead in one without really pleading in the other. In other words, you either are all in as a cooperator and admitting your liability or you're not. Um, whether, you know, both jurisdictions would require him to plead guilty as opposed to one is that sort of a that's really more of a how the, the technicalities. But I do think if I were in the federal government, I'd want to match what Fonnie Willis did and because you have your own separate interest. And the more pressure on him, the better. I mean, these are people who try to engage in a coup undermining the de- democracy. I mean, this is it. It's it's so hard to understate this because it's just the worst <laughs> um, or sorry, it's about hard to overstate it because it's just the worst yeah. possible crime you can think of. Let's you, you you said trial date. I wrote it down. And now let's talk about it. Uh, Donald Trump. Yep. Uh, yesterday, uh, there was laughter <laughs> in, in 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 response to the idea that they want to have this date, you know, in, in never the month of never tea, apparently, um, when we talked about it on the yep. show. Um, what do you make of this attempt to push the trial date into far yonder? And where do you think we wind up with a trial date? Because we have so many trial dates. Do you see any chance of the of either of these these cases happening before the primaries or before like March, April? Well, I think a really good thing for folks to remember is um, Judge Ludig, who is a very respected, very conservative former judge in the Fourth Circuit, um, you know, in Virginia. He has said repeatedly publicly that he thinks that the Trump cases can and should happen before the general election and that due process does not require that they be you know after the election that he can prepare and do all of this beforehand it's that's a one good data point um, the other is you know Paul Manafort in Virginia we indicted him in like January or February he was on trial in July and that was in front yeah. of a judge who also was very conservative in DC his trial took 11 months just to, to go from indictment to trial. Um, I actually found the submission from the defense sort of facially amusing. And if you scratch under the surface, it made no sense at all. I mean, to have a diagram of like how many war and peace volumes this would be, that's just not how discovery works here. Um, uh, In the days where the electronic discovery, of course, there's mountains and mountains of evidence if you turned it into paper documents. That's not what happened. And you know what? That hasn't happened for over 25 years. Judge Chutkin isn't going to be fooled by that. It's just that's something that was done for his base, but not for the court. 
Um, and uh, by the way, this is how much of a nerd I am. I read War and Peace in high school um, and uh, walked around with it. It looked like a giant doorstop. Uh, and it's actually. Yes. And by the way, um, you don't need to read it seven times to prepare. No. You only need to oh, read once it is once. Enough. Trust me. Half of it is like meals of like cabbage and stuff. Um, l- let's talk about the one something actually that did surprise me. It seems like Donald Trump actually listened to his lawyers. He's not going to do his big press conference that's going to prove that the election is stolen. Somehow his lawyers talked him down from doing that. What do you make of the fact that Trump, who is, you know, the ultimate showman, is not going to do that particular show? And is that good legal advice that he got to don't don't do that? Yeah. So let's just remember, this is what the president's saying, which is, I have concrete, as he quote, irrefutable, that's what he said, irrefutable evidence that the election was stolen. But I'm not going to share it with you publicly because my lawyers don't want to. And and since when does Donald Trump ever listen to his lawyers? I mean, so the idea that he has irrefutable evidence, but he's not going to share it. I mean, it's yeah. so palpably laughable. Um, I do think that there this is a situation where his lawyers were able to exert some control. And I think it's because he knows that there are about to be two trial dates, both in Georgia and in D.C. that are set. And that's kind of the whole ball of wax. So they basically probably sat him down and said, you know what, whatever you want to say, can you please say it after (laughs) the trial dates are picked? And the other is in Georgia, there's going to be a bail hearing. And again, if he continues with the kinds of attacks that he's made, which that is one where, you know, it's it's, it's so important to talk about how serious that is, because as sure as we're sitting here, we know that there is going to be continued threats and actual real life consequences the way there were to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and potentially worse um, because of his conduct. And and the prosecutors and the judges are not going to tolerate that. Absolutely. Anyone else would be in jail long ago for having done the stuff that he's done and said about these judges and Look, these uh, witnesses, et cetera. Like in jail. Sam, Sam, um, right. Sam Bankman Freed in the Southern District of New York is in jail uh-huh. right now for engaging in this kind of conduct. There you go. Andrew Weissman, thank you very much. I'm actually an Oscar winner, but I'm not going to show it to you. I have irrefutable proof that I have an Oscar, but I'm not going to show it to you. Nope, not going to do it. Thank you, Andrew. Bye. <laughs> and up Take next care. on the readout. Bye. Uh, a Trumpless debate is on the horizon, and I, for one, could not be happier that he won't be given yet another chance to spread his dangerous lies and baseless accusations. But what to expect from the rest of the field when the readout continues? The first Republican debate is next week, and the big question for Republican voters and the Fox execs who recently held a pleading dinner with him is, will Donald Trump show up? Skipping debates isn't exactly new for the four times indicted non-billionaire. Call it an unoriginal rerun of his 2016 playbook. According to NBC News, Trump has told people he will not attend, opting instead for a sit-down interview with a guy who used to have a really racist show on Fox. What's his name again? I don't know. I just can't recall. Something related to Swanson Fishsticks? Colton Carlson? Something. Anywho, Trump's team says nothing has been decided. So apparently whoever that guy is hasn't even confirmed. But if Trump's not there, the top target on the stage will very likely be the distant runner-up in most of the polls, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So what's his plan? Well... The DeSantis Super PAC never backed down, posted a debate strategy memo that urged the Disney battler to attack President Biden and distant fourth or fifth place candidate Vivek Ramaswamy while defending Trump. And amazingly, 
show emotion, a thing he struggled with for most of his political career. It is hard to overstate how baffling it is that this stuff was written down, let alone published by someone ostensibly on his side. One Republican strategist told NBC, quote, if I wanted to sabotage Ron DeSantis, I'd write this dung debate strategy memo and put it online and then tip off a reporter. Which someone apparently did. Joining me now, Dino Vidala, host of Sirius XM's Dino Vidala Show and an MSNBC Daily columnist. And Brian Taylor Cohen, Brian Tyler Cohen, progressive YouTube creator and an MSNBC political contributor. Thank you all for being here, Brian. I mangled your name because reading is fundamental, so I'm going to make you go first. Um, I have to be honest with you. Like, I used to work in campaigns, and I can tell you one thing we would never do <laughs> is forward the debate strategy so that we could follow, so that Dean Obadala could follow by long and make fun of this man throughout the whole debate, which Dean is going to do. He's nodding. But I just want to get your take first. I'm going to let you go first. Uh, here's his four basic must-dos. Attack Joe Biden in the media three to five times. State, state a positive vision two to three times. Hammer Vivek Ramaswamy in a response and defend Donald Trump in abstention in response to Chris Christie's attack. Uh, your thoughts? <laughs> Look, I'm no high high profile political consultant, right? But I guess I'm of the mind that when you are competing with someone for anything, uh, the goal is generally to try and beat them. Donald Trump is the only thing standing between Ron DeSantis and winning the Republican nomination as it stands right now. And so, you know, it really is telling that weakness and capitulation are kind of built into his campaign. And so I don't see how there's a path to victory when losing is the strategy, the purposeful strategy to get you there. You know, uh, Dean, number one, first of all, how many times are you going to make fun of Ron DeSantis per hour when he does any of these things? Because I anticipate it's going to be hilarious and that you're going to do it like every time. <laughs> we will. But you know who's going to do it in real time? Chris Christie. And Chris Christie's going to yeah. print that out and go, oh, look, Ron, you're following along there. Paragraph three. You just attacked me twice. defended Donald Trump. Oh, three to five times you attacked Joe Biden. It's going to be prices. We're all going to be laughing. They should do a drinking game. Every time he does one of the things, and then by the end of it, everyone's just drunk and wasted. So look, it's, and what's missing from the list is Ron DeSantis is going to come out wearing a MAGA hat and MAGA gear and carrying a MAGA flag. This whole thing's going to be a salute to Donald Trump, the fascist leader. It's not a debate. It's like how much I love Trump more. No, I love Trump more. And then when, Ron, when Chris Christie criticizes, they're going to be chanting to his face, Trump, Trump, Trump. This is going to be unlike any debate we've ever seen in our lives. It's so it's wild. OK, because what's what's happening, Brian, is that you're going to have a Trump cheerleading fest on Fox and then Trump cheerleading a cheerleading fest on what Twitter spaces or whatever they call the thing now with, you know, yeah. the guy that used to have a fog that got fired from Fox, you know. And so they're all going to be cheering for Trump. Why even have a debate if the whole point of all of it is just to, they're all going to cheer for Trump and Trump's cheering for Trump, too? Yeah, I mean, that that is the whole point. They're all apparently running for second place. I mean, I'm not sure what they're actually trying to do. They're stuck in this weird spot where obviously they purportedly want to win the Republican nomination themselves, and yet all of them are too scared to A, go after him because they don't want to incur the wrath of Donald Trump himself, and B, they have, you know, allowed, they have groomed basically the Republican base to believe any, everything and anything that Donald Trump says. And so when he has said all these lies and everything, now now they believe every word he says. And so th they believe him now. They're on his team now through thick and thin. And so there's really no way through this because of what they've done themselves and what they continue to do by continuing to entrench his superiority in the Republican Party. And, you know, let's talk about um, 
this this guy, Ron DeSantis, for just a moment, Dean. Some Florida Republicans say that they really did respect him to implode. You know, there is a saying in Florida, there are two kinds of people in Florida, people who think that uh, Ron DeSantis can be president and people who've met Ron DeSantis. There is a famous or infamous story that Gwen Graham, who was a you know member of Congress, fellow member of Congress with him at one point, they were both running in 2018. She's running for a spot. He was running for governor. They ran into each other in the airport. He had his headphones in and pretended he didn't see her. She's talking to him. He's just not responding and just acted like he didn't see her. And she said it was one of the weirdest moments of her political career. That is a well-known story about Ron DeSantis. People are openly you know, giving quotes about how weird and awkward he is. What do you expect him to do other than do the things on his list? Like, is he going to be polling number two after the debate? Can you imagine that? Uh, that, No, first of all, Ron DeSantis is doing a great impression of a human being, but he's failing at that. Like, he is human-esque. He is not human. There's no warmth at all. I will say on paper, his pedigree, really impressive. Yale, graduate with honors, captain of the baseball team. Harvard Law School with honors, serves in the military. So there he has that. Then you meet the guy and you're like, that's the guy from the resume? <laughs> so at, at the debate, I expect Ron Sins to pick up the paper and actually read it, what he's supposed to be doing. But I think, honestly, Trump's making a mistake. I think a star is going to be born in this debate. We've seen it in the Democratic debates in 2020. Somebody emerges, and then the media gravitates around them. The person raises funds, and then Trump is then stuck with someone who's not going to catch them or not right away but actually a competitor. And it won't be Ron DeSantis. I'm not sure. It could be Tim Scott. It could be Nikki Haley. I'm not sure who it's going to be. But I can assure you, the media is going to crown a winner from that debate. It's going to drive Donald Trump crazy. You, the, 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 actually, the, the showdown I really do want to see, though, honestly, is Chris Christie versus Trump. Bully versus bully. I really want to see that. It is interesting, uh, Brian, that Rupert Murdoch has a candidate that, you know, as Dean describes, and it is the governor of Virginia, the book banning, um, you know, racist-ish governor, <laughs> like no bo- no black books, no black history governor of Virginia. Your thoughts on them trying to find their own candidate, uh, the Murdochs? I mean, it's the same problem that I was speaking about before. They they have spent so long running cover for Donald Trump that the idea that they're going to be able to pry the same viewers who they agreed, who they groomed to follow Donald Trump off the cliff is just is asinine. I mean, he runs that party and it's by their own help. So this idea that Rupert Murdoch thinks he's going to come and pry them away from the very people who he pushed toward Donald Trump just kind of defies logic. Yeah, it, it, all of it does. Uh, okay, well, well, Dean and Brian are, have graciously agreed to stick around because after the break, we need to talk <laughs> about a certain Republican governor's decision to ban AP African-American studies in her state, claiming that it is teaching kids there to hate America. We'll be right back. I am back with Dean Obedala and Brian Tyler Cohen. Um, let, let's talk about uh, Arkansas. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So it, it does appear that the Ron DeSantis brand, while it is uh, putting fingers weird um, and unpleasant uh, and anti-Disney, um, is catching. Uh, this is Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She leaves the Huckabee out. Um, lying about canceling African-American AP studies in her state. 
There's an accusation that the Arkansas Education Department removed credit for controversial AP African-American studies course. Let me just read to you what the NAACP said and let you respond. They said the Arkansas State Conference of the NAACP is appalled at the recent decision of Arkansas Department of Education to make a hasteful decision at the final hour to do away with AP African-American studies. Is that really what happened there? Uh, absolutely not. We cannot perpetuate a lie to our students and push this propaganda leftist agenda, teaching our kids to hate America and hate one another. So, Dean, I, Dean, I didn't realize that taking AP African-American studies would make children hate America. Um, did you? No. And the call African-American studies propaganda is despicable. But this is, Joy, this is all part of the critical race theory bans that are already in laws in numerous Republican states. And the goal is, bluntly, to erase black achievement because it undermines the myth of white supremacy and white superiority and erase black suffering at the hands of white bigots in the past because these Republicans don't want people to know about their ancestors, to be blunt, and what they did during Jim Crow or even further back during the time of slavery. So we're dealing with the idea of Republican freedom is to ban classes, ban books, and everything they don't want you to know about. And, and one thing I wrote about this from MSNBC, Joy, this has been going on for 20 years, the, the hostility by the right, the GOP, to black history being taught at all in school. It built 20 years ago, no problem, 20 years later now, a big spike in that. And that's because they believe in polls, 75% of Republicans, that white people suffer as much discrimination if not more than black people. So they don't want to hear about black people suffering. They want to hear about white people suffering and teaching black history doesn't make sense to them. They want to talk about white history and how much they suffered waiting 20 minutes at Cracker Barrel to get a table because that's oppression. Uh, but, but, Brian, it is interesting to me that they're doing this at the same time that they're banning abortion, which was also illegal for enslaved women because it was considered a property crime. And they're also doing, and it's specifically in the state of Arkansas, this same governor, uh, Governor Huckabee Sanders, has signed a bill allowing child labor, which is one of the many replacements for enslaved labor. Cheap, cheap child labor. Perfectly legal now in the state of Arkansas. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, history repeats itself, and there's a reason that these people don't want us to know, or don't want the students in that state to know about what what came before. It's because it's a it's a it's a precursor to what they're doing right now. But you know, on its face, this whole thing really is so ridiculous. Because since when? I mean, as if I'm as if I'm you know actually humoring the what they're actually talking about here. But since when can students not learn something without internalizing it? Like when I was a kid, we learned about everything—the good, the bad, and the ugly—and. Uh, I didn't go home and give myself lashings or hold myself unilaterally responsible for all of the woes in this country's history. So, uh, you know, I, I, I learned. That's it. And uh, and to Dean's point, this is just lazy, obvious excuses to basically prop up white grievance culture and uh, and and just, you know, uh, I guess prop up people whose views about race are so fragile that their only way to navigate through this is just to ban it outright. And the thing about it is, it's a presumption that if you teach white kids about the negative parts of history, they're going to identify with the bad guys. They're not going to identify with the abolitionists. It's a really interesting comment on their own children and on really on themselves, because I don't think it's their kids. 
that are going to identify with the bad guys in history. I think it's them. I think they identify with the slavers and not the abolitionists. And they're afraid that if their children are exposed to history, their children will actually be empathetic. They'll be empathetic toward the enslaved. And then when you become empathetic, you might want to have policies that are positive toward young people, toward women, toward children, Mm -hmm. toward the poor. And you know what that means? Tax increases for the rich. It's all about making unempathetic little right-wing Republicans out of kids who would otherwise be woke. This is my theory. They just want to make sure they ain't woke. All right, well, these these lovely gentlemen are going to stick around and come back with me to play Who Won the Week in just a little bit. But first, I recently spoke with Academy Award winner Morgan Freeman, the Morgan Freeman, you know, like a G-O-D, about the personal connection that inspired him to create a new documentary on World War II's first black tank battalion. That'll be very shortly when we come right back. History, but especially black history, is under attack in America, which is why documentaries are crucial for understanding this country's past. A new one, 761st Tank Battalion, the original Black Panthers, tells the true story of the first black tank unit to serve in combat during World War II. While the majority black battalion was fighting one battle overseas, they were also fighting another in their home country against racism, segregation, and inequality. These heroes helped to liberate more than 30 cities and towns. They were the tip of Patton's spear. They fully integrated the armed forces. Black veterans become major figures in the civil rights movement. I really want to see the 761st finally get the recognition they deserve. Because these men really did come out fighting. That is right. The one and only Morgan Freeman is here with me on set. The Academy Award winning actor is also the executive producer of 761st Tank Battalion, the original Black Panthers, which premieres on the History Channel. And we should note that the documentary was produced under SAG's basic cable agreement, which is outside the scope of the strike order. As such, Mr. Freeman is able to be here to promote the film. I am the luckiest person alive (laughs) that I get to be here with you. Um, Mr. Freeman, thank you so much for being here. It's nice to be here with you, Joy. So tell us about the 761st, but also your personal connection to this story and why you wanted to do it. Uh, I'd never heard of them until, what, 12 or so years ago? I don't know, 20 years ago, I think. And a guy came to us with a, a script, a story about this tank battalion that was served on the Patton. Wait a minute, I saw Patton. What do you mean, tank battalion? Well, we started getting into that, getting up with this history, and yes, indeedy. When Patton ran out of uh, men and materials, and uh, a couple of months after the invasion, Europe, he said, somebody go find me some tanks. So they went and they found the 761st. They've been training since... 1942. They wouldn't let her come over there and fight because, well, these people, they just, they won't work out in the tank, you mm-hmm. know. 
thing in the tank and it's number one, the courage just to stay there. Right. And then you got to think fast a lot of mm -hmm. times. And I, you know, I, these fellows are just not going to manage that. I just, I can't hope that well, here they come. Mm -hmm. And when it was all over, they never actually rotated back from the front lines. They were that effective that if you needed something done, um, where's the 761st now? Yeah. Suddenly they realized that these Black Lives Mattered and that they knew what they were doing. And Absolutely. Come Out Fighting was their, I love that, Come Out Fighting was their um, sort of their slogan. Yeah. You got a chance to actually speak with a survivor, maybe the final surviving member. His name is Corporate Robert Curtis Andre. Yes. Talk about him. Yeah. Uh, well, he was, I think he honest survived up to the second battle they had, the second encounter. And Something went off in the tank. Uh, they got hit. Shrapnel just littered his body. And uh, they took him out of the tank, laid him on the side of the road in a shallow ditch, covered him up with ferns and grass and dirt uh, in order to, so that they could find him when they come back, if they came back, if they came back, yeah. or whatever was coming over. Coming and he survived that. And when I was talking to him, you, you talked to veterans of, combat and they can't tell you much yeah you know it was hell i was there mm -hmm. so details somebody called that the bog of war right? yeah yeah but they got him he survived and his body is still uh shedding shrapnel just working its wow. way out of his wow yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, the fact that um, the U executive produced this documentary at this time, when history is under attack, and black history specifically, there is this sort of sense among some people in this country that it is dangerous to tell our stories, that our stories will somehow make white Americans feel bad, you know, in giving the truth of our history. Why do you think it is important to insist upon telling our history anyway? If you don't, understand and learn from history. The mistakes that you made are just going to come around again. This country, bless our hearts, tried really, really hard to tamp down what we know is under the rocks and hiding in bushes. And if we don't know about it, if we don't learn from it and learn to recognize it and have the courage to deal with it, we're just going to wind up back where we were, which is not where we want to be. Yeah. And the thing about the World War II, the, the, you know, the black men who fought in World War II, and there were significant numbers of them, is that they really were key to the civil rights movement. They came home from having seen the world um, having traveled more than most white Americans ever had, right, who didn't serve, and said, you know what? No, we insist upon being able to vote. We insist upon being able to have dignity and to be treated with respect. That really was key to this—it's like you need the connections to understand history in general. Yeah, a lot of them had the first experience with being respected mm -hmm. in Europe when they got to England and got to France and that welcomed with open arms. This is American fighting men. Yeah. Come on in. Um, treated with dignity. And so you say it can happen. So we're going to insist on it at home. There is only one uh, Morgan Freeman, the great Morgan Freeman. Thank you. It is an honor just to meet you and be able to talk to you. And I truly mean that. This seems like an incredible documentary. 
and I appreciate you. Thank you so much for that, Joy. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Look at those dark brown eyes. Okay. I hereby retire. Thank you all for having me. Uh, 761st Tank Battalion, the original Black Panthers, premieres August 20th on the History Channel. You must watch it. You have been asked and commanded by God himself. We'll be right back. Well, friends, we made it to the end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes, who won the week? Back with me are Dean Obedala and Brian Tyler Cohen. And Dean, you are the veteran of this game. So I'm going to ask you to start by telling us who won the week. You did. You got to interview Morgan Freeman. How cool was exactly. that? Exactly. Right, so Clearly. So <laughs> Fulton, County, Fulton County DA, Bonnie Willis, because she went full Marco Corleone on the Trump crime family. She took care of all family business, like Michael Corleone, like Natalia, Barzini. She got them all. <laughs> Trump, Giuliani, Meadows. All of them, and she's freeing all of MAGA world because she's a strong, powerful black woman. It's driving her crazy. So, MAGA, how do you like that critical race theory? It's Bonnie Willis, the winner of the week. <laughs> she, took, she, she took a white folding chair uh, to justice. Uh, we appreciate that. Yeah. Brian, uh, it is your turn, my friend. Who won right, the well week? I'm going to go with a little bit of a curveball here because I had a feeling Dean would pick Fonnie Willis. So Ben Shapiro <laughs> issued this 43-minute call to arms against Barbie in an effort to show how hard the right can flex its muscles and destroy this monument to woke communist leftist culture. And what happened next was that Barbie became the highest grossing release ever from Warner Brothers. So uh, big thumbs up to Ben Shapiro and his boycott crusaders on the right <laughs> for showing all of us just how potent grievance culture can be. Barbie is now the first billion dollar film helmed by a woman director. Barbie always wins, y'all. Stop fighting her. She's going to win every single time with all of her like black Barbie friends. Uh, yes, that is actually correct. But I, too, am joining Dean in saying that the heroic officers of the court won the week. Not just mm. the great Fonnie Willis, but Jack Smith and Judge Tanya Chutkin all of them are swimming across the rivers of injustice, taking folding chairs to the criminals and skipping in their jeans to beat crime. And we appreciate them. Dean Obadala, Brian Tyler Cohen, thank you very much. For more Brian's digital thing, you have to find him online. I follow him as well. Follow him on all the social medias. This is the end of the readout. So bye, bye, bye. <laughs>